Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning, good morning to you. You, good morning, good morning, good morning to you. Good morning to you and many more. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host today, Shantae Charles, and I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. I tell you, there's something about this particular turban that makes me feel like candy. <laughs> I don't know why. Probably all of the bright colors. But um, for some reason this morning, I was having a really, really difficult time awaking. And I was like, man, what is this? I kept wanting to fall back asleep. And though I know I needed to get some things done this morning. Um, so y'all pray for me on that because I'm like... Once I usually once I get up, I'm like up and rolling. But today I was like, oh, I was kind of drowsy and um, had a difficult time trying to just come awake this morning. So today is Teachable Thinking Thursday. It's Theology Thursday where we talk today about all things theology, faith, spirituality, its intersections. And before we get into our reading that we have been working on, I want to share with you something I picked up um, a couple of weeks ago from Barnes and Nobles. And there was only one on the shelf. And I was like, because there was only one on the shelf, I was definitely interested in picking it up. And good morning to each and every one of you that is in session today. So this is the African-American Heritage Hymnal. I didn't even know something like this had been compiled, but apparently this has been around since 2001. Again, it's called the African-American Heritage Hymnal, and it's 575 hymns, spirituals, and gospel songs in one place. So if you are, as they said, if you are a singer, if you are a musician, if you enjoy um, traditional gospel music or you're looking for the compositions for traditional gospel music, they have it in here. I want to just read you the synopsis and then I'm going to move on. It's 1,100 pages. It is the first major book of its kind to be published in decades. And this one was published in 2001. So I don't know if there's a you know, a reprinting or a further iteration. But like I said, I got this one from a bookstore. Um, it is the culmination of eight years of inspired work by a committee of more than 30 musicians and pastors, including many national leaders in African-American worship and gospel music. 575 hymns, spirituals, and gospel songs in this book represent the common repertoire of African-American churches across the United States and also across denominations, which is important. 
For the first time in an African-American hymnal, traditional hymns and songs are notated to reflect performance practices found in the oral tradition of the Black church in America. So this is the first time that someone is, was, is documenting the oral tradition of how we sing certain songs in the Black church. At a time when such traditions are falling victim to modern technology, this hymnal strives to preserve the heritage for future generations. This hymnal also includes litanies for 52 Sundays, outlining an African-American church year, including special days like Martin Luther King Sunday, Elder's Day, Mother's Day, Men's Day. It also contains 52 responsive scriptural readings from the Old and New Testament. It offers the most complete and extensive indexing ever found in a hymnal from this tradition, including scripture and thematic cross-references. So they're not only just giving you the song, but they're also giving you, you know, what the song was based on, what scripture or what text that the song was based on. While this book is clearly a major contribution, it is also a comprehensive resource for pastors, musicians, hymnologists, musicologists, and church historians of all traditions. So, I mean, listen. <laughs> for example, hymn 134 in this book. God is the joy and the strength of my life. He moves all pain, misery, and strife. He promised to keep me, never to leave me. He's never ever come short of his word. I've got to fast and pray. I probably messed up that beat right there, but I'm going to keep going. I've got to fast and pray, stay in the narrow way. I'll keep my life clean every day. Mm -hmm. God is, God is, God Dun, 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 dun. He is my all and all. And then, of course, that people tend to transition it up and up and up and up and up, right? And, of course, I, I left out, I want to go with him when he comes back. I come too far and I'll never turn back. God is, God is, God is, God is. And if you are in a, let me see, if you're in a Pentecostal church, you're going to say, is, he is my Oh, and oh, right? 
And then it tells you where this song came from. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a, present, a very present help in, in trouble. So one singer that I know for sure that definitely is kind of like bringing back singing the scriptures. I've been singing the scriptures as long as I've been saved because a lot of my songwriting is tied to singing the scriptures and what I'm learning from scripture and meditating and praying. And in that process, songs come forth. Um, but I think um, Todd Delaney does a really good job of bringing back this tradition of going into the text, going into the scriptures, drawing from the scriptures and singing the word. I often tell people one of the most powerful things you can do is to sing the word, sing the word over yourself, um, sing the word over your situation, sing the word over your children, sing the word, sing the word, sing the word, sing the word. They even have total praise in here, which of course is classic Richard Smallwood. So yeah, if you are a person who enjoys singing the hymns, you enjoy singing the spirituals that came out of the rich heritage and history of the African-American experience here, especially in America, pick this up, pick it up. Now, it, it it's not too pricey. Um, the price on this was a little over 30 bucks, um, but you can probably get it on Amazon for probably less than that. If you look on Amazon or thrift books, or what's the other site I use? Christianbook.com. Um, but because I got it in Barnes and Nobles, I got a educator's discount. So I did not pay full price for it. But please, if you want to preserve your heritage in song, this would be a good pickup for your permanent library. All right, let's get into, because y'all are going to have me singing over here and I'll just be singing the whole show. And that's not what I intended today. <laughs> All right, Reading While Black by Esau McCauley. I really appreciate Esau McCauley. Number one, because he is a theologian. I tend to read scholars and theologians when it comes to scripture um, because there, anybody can write a book. Let me just say that. These days, there are so many tools that are available that anybody can write a book, whether they're scriptural interpretation is right or wrong or whether their understanding of the gospel and scripture is right or wrong anybody can write a book so that being said i tend to gravitate towards scholars and theologians um particularly black scholars and theologians because they have a lens that i think is too often um underappreciated so i do want to say that I appreciate Esau Macaulay's dissection of the word with a lens toward the black experience in America. That is really what he's doing in his book, um, Reading While Black. It is an African-American biblical interpretation as an exegesis in hope. He's showing us where in the text we can find certain issues that deal with what is happening in the black community today and what is the scriptural framework? How are we to respond to what we see happening in light of scripture? 
And this is very, very important. So today's section is called Prayer, Submission, and the Text, meaning scripture, the text that we center. And then we're going to look at the testimony of Jesus to political resistance. We're just going to cover those two sections and then I'll open it up for a conversation. Prayer, submission, and the text we center. Many popular political theologies of the New Testament begin with Romans 13, 1 through 7, which we looked at last chapter, and 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Centering these texts leaves Christians with the following duties. Number one, good morning. Number one, submit to the state. Number two, pay your taxes. Number three, pray for those in leadership. None of these three duties are in themselves wrong. They are simply limited in scope. Limited in scope. And guess what? I think number three, pray for those in leadership. I think people are slacking on that one. <laughs> I'm going to just be honest. I think people are slacking on it. I do. I think right now people have shifted to criticize those in leadership more so than pray for those in leadership. I think we've got, we're heaping it on. There's tons. If, if you want to find a podcast or a video, or something criticizing people in leadership, you're going to find thousands of them. If you want to find a video where people are actually praying for people in leadership, you're going to have to search for it. And that's just across the board. Um, we know that there has been lots of horrific things that have gone down or that have been exposed, I would say, in the last decade, right? You had the not just the Me Too movement, but you also had the Church Too movement, right? You have people that are leaving church because they're saying that, hey, your your practice of the faith is not aligning with what you what you are doing in in life to other people. You're bringing harm to people on one hand, but on the other hand, you're telling me that Jesus is love. Jesus wants us to care. Jesus wants us to have compassion. But I don't see love and care and compassion and kindness um, coming out of you. So, yeah, it has put a lot of people in what I like to call a faith crisis because their their mind is saying, I want to live for Christ. I want to walk in the way of Christ. But what I'm seeing coming out of leadership, not just the laity, um, as it said, but what I see coming out of leadership is in direct opposition to what I know about Christ. So I do not fault people who are having that conversation and, and who are seeing that conflict. What I will say is make sure that you stay in Christ as you work through the conflict that you're seeing. Um, make sure you understand that there's a difference between Christ consciousness and walking as Christ designed and human flesh that fails every time. Because there are certain things that people are putting on God. I don't put that stuff on God. I'm saying that is human flesh. Human flesh is going to do what human flesh does outside of submitting to the divinity of Christ on the inside of them. 
And so I'm not blaming God for what human flesh is doing. I've learned to differentiate between the two, deal with human flesh, address what's happening with human flesh, and know that in Christ, human flesh submits to the divine. There's just people that don't want to do that. <laughs> it's possible. You can submit to the divine. You can. You can. It's called grace. Grace to do it and grace to ask for it. Help me to submit to the divine nature of Christ. Help me to walk in the divine nature of Christ. Help me to operate in Christ consciousness and not just my own human way of thinking and doing. Help me to see things the way that God sees them so that I can respond the way God would respond. Because if I respond in my human nature, somebody might get cussed out. Somebody might get told off. <laughs> somebody might get shoved and a whole bunch of other stuff. So we have to recognize, right, when our human nature wants to take the wheel versus our divine nature that's given to us in Christ. And here's the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit. He's going to let you know when the divine nature is not working and operating in you. And he's going to tell you. <laughs> he's going to tell you, you are out of line. You're not walking in the faith right now. You're, you're, you're not walking in the Christ consciousness that's on the inside of you. And you still have a choice. Like, the creator does not take away your free will. So if you want to operate in your human nature, he'll let you because he's not going to force divine nature upon us. Now, there are some other people that think that God will force them, but he will not. The writer says here, in an American context, the often unstated belief in our corporate wisdom and goodness undergirds the call to submit to the government and pray. Many believe that given time and space, our government will eventually opt for the good or the just and the true. Patience, also a Christian virtue, is urged while we fix whatever is broken. We see this belief in our goodness and the call to patience in the letter addressed to Reverend Dr. King that we mentioned previously. African-American Christians who suffer and die while we are told to be patient are allowed to wonder what motivates our fellow Christians to begin talking to us with these passages. We are also allowed to ask whether 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 4 and Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 when read together and against black protests for freedom are being used to distort the message of the New Testament. As we stated earlier, the question is not the authority of the text under consideration. Instead, we wonder about how they are being weaponized in debates about the political witness of the church. Now is not the time to litigate Romans 13 again. I've already argued that one, problems that many have with Romans are more about theodicy than rulers. Two, Romans 9 verse 16 and the wider Old Testament witnesses give us examples of God using humans, God using humans to take down corrupt regimes. So when you see a corrupt regime, wink, wink, looking at you, Florida, <laughs> you shouldn't just be standing by 
saying, well, we're supposed to follow those in leadership, even if the leadership is following, uh, is leading us off a cliff. No, there are times in scripture where God uses human beings to take down corrupt regimes. And therefore, Romans 13, 1 through 7, should be read as a testimony to our inability to discern when God's judgment will arrive for the corrupt. This does not mean that a Christian cannot protest injustice. It means that we cannot claim God's justification if we're using violence. Submission and acquiescence are two different things. Well, what about 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4? Doesn't it command us to pray for our rulers? It does. The problem here, again, is not the call to pray, but its interpretation within a context dedicated to limited black political expression. The text does not call for us to pray for people who are oppressing us to keep on being blessed to oppress us. First <laughs> Timothy 2, 1 through 4 reads, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the caveat there is praying for kings who are in high positions that you may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Well, what happens if your king or your those in high positions are not only not causing there to be any quieter peace, but they're actually facilitating people coming against you to unalive parts of your community based on their rhetoric and their policies. That's not something you pray to stay in office. So two things are evident here. Paul's concern is that we pray for all people, not just kings and rulers. The reason we are called to pray is so that we can go about the work of being the people that, of God without being harassed. So if we're being harassed and you are in office, then obviously I'm not going to pray for you to stay in office. Since rulers and kings have much to say about the quality of our lives, we pray that they would give us the space we need to do our work. Black Christians have no problem praying for freedom to pursue the mission of the ecclesia unhindered. The question before us is precisely what to do when those in authority are standing in the way of us living as free believers. The popular misconception that Christians are called to pray and not to speak plainly about contemporary concerns fails to take seriously Paul's own testimony in 1 Timothy about injustice. A quick glance back at chapter 1 will reveal that Paul makes not so subtle jabs at the practices and laws of Rome. In 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, Paul argues that the law was not put in place for the righteous, but the ungodly. His point is that the law prescribes punishment for the wicked, not those who are obedient to their creator. He then lays out the kinds of ungodliness that the Old Testament law condemned. One of the groups that he singles out are the 
andropodistase, i.e., i.e., the slave traders. He groups these slave traders in a category of those who are contrary to sound doctrine. So for those of you saying that, well, Paul was talking about slavery, so he must have approved it. First Timothy 1 and 10. When Paul refers to sound doctrine, he has in mind the received teaching of Christians everywhere. For Paul then, slave trading is a theological error to be shunned by Christians. Again, there are parts of the scriptures that are descriptive, meaning describing what is taking place, and prescriptive, meaning what you should do and adhere to. I am not an expert on Roman slave law, but I am quite sure that there are no laws against slave trading. In fact, slave trading was seen as a good way to make money in Paul's time. Therefore, in the passage immediately preceding Paul's call to pray for leaders, he is critiquing an established practice of the empire, slave trading as wicked and indicative of ungodly behavior. So throw out the window that Paul is must be approving of slavery, because I've heard that over and over and over again. He's actually critiquing the practice. Prayer for leaders and criticism of their practices are not mutually exclusive ideas. Both have biblical warrant in the same letter. The purpose of this section has not been to criticize prayer. As an Anglican clergy person, I pray for our leaders as a part of our weekly liturgy and my daily private devotions. The goal has been to highlight the problems that occur when this is seen as the totality of our testimony. Now I move on to more positive examples of public engagement and criticism of rulers in the New Testament, beginning with Jesus himself. The testimony of Jesus to political resistance. Because here's another thing that I've often heard people say, well, Jesus wasn't really political. Jesus really didn't get involved into the political aspects like that. Let me tell you something. Religion is political. Somebody type that on the screen. <laughs> Religion itself is political. If you didn't know that religion itself was political, you probably found that out about a week ago now when the Church of God in Christ tried to do a partnership with the Mormons. Religion is political. Mm -hmm. I won't get into that today. That's a whole that's a whole show in and of itself. And other people have done great jobs of expounding on that. But just know religion is political. On one level, we can look at the entirety of Jesus' ministry as an act of political resistance. Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 clearly places the birth of Christ in context of the reigns of Augustus on one hand and Herod on the other. This placement raises the question of who is the true king of Israel 
and the world. The Gospels go on to argue that despite all appearances, the true king with all authority is Jesus. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. My focus will not be on Jesus' ministry as a whole. I simply want to explore the implications of his description of Herod during an interaction with the Pharisees. The scene is brief, but full of meaning. The Pharisees, who throughout Luke's narrative grow more and more suspicious of Jesus, of his work, begin to warn him to leave the area because Herod seeks his death. Why would Herod perceive Jesus to be a threat? After all, this is Mary's baby from Nazareth. Can anything come from Nazareth, Jesus? This is the carpenter's son. Why is the king perceiving Jesus to be a threat? This is Jesus from the ancient hood. Why is that would be like the president of the United States perceiving, I don't know, Tupac <laughs> to be a threat? It certainly isn't because Herod is particularly concerned about Jesus transgressing food or Sabbath laws. It is not because Jesus tells people that they should love God and love their neighbors. It is not because Jesus lauds the grace of God and points toward the inclusion of Gentiles. These issues would not be sufficient enough to rouse Herod from a nap. But something about Jesus causes the Pharisees to tell Jesus to, quote, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Luke 13, 31. Some accounts of Jesus' life and ministry make his death at the hands of the state unexplainable. Herod did not see Jesus as a danger because he was a compassionate healer who spoke of justice, repentance, and transformation. Herod saw Jesus as a threat because his ministry of healing was a sign of of the inbreaking reign of God over the people and not a king. Repentance was spiritual preparation for God's eschatological work of salvation. Because here's the thing. When God is reigning over a people, the people are going to do what the creator wants them to do especially if they're in they're under a ruler that is trying to get them to go contrary to their creator. So as long as you are under that ruler and following that ruler's dictates and rules, there's no problem. But the moment you bring God into the equation and you say, I'm not going to follow this because I'm following God, rulers will have a problem with you. Unless, of course, that ruler is under God's instructions and wisdom. Repentance, again, is spiritual preparation for God's work of salvation to come into the world and reign over the people. Anyone familiar with the Jewish scriptures knew that when God did act, he would not leave the rulers of this world unthreatened. This is what frightened Herod. The possibility that the advent of God's reign through Jesus might upset his own reign over the people. Whether Herod believed that God was at work in Jesus is beside the point. Herod displays no fear of God. 
power was his God. What he feared was the hope that Jesus might give to the disinherited, i.e. the Africans under Roman um, occupation at the time who were being oppressed. So there's always been this thing, if you look at um, American history and if you look at the the history of the program, the COINTEL program, there is this one line that um, several people allude to or refer to in those documents. And it's this idea of them searching for any Messiah characteristic, any black person who is exhibiting a black Messiah, they call it a black Messiah. So in that program, the government was always on the lookout for someone who presented themselves as a Messiah to black people in the black community. Why? Because that black Messiah would engender hope. <laughs> they would give hope to the disinherited. They would give hope to the oppressed. <clears throat> so you notice in black history that anytime you had somebody starting to rise as sort of this Messiah figure or had the potential to lead black people in a sense of hope rather than despair, in a sense of freedom rather than oppression, that person was either unalived or deported. Those were the two choices. And I don't have to name names. You can just look at our black history and think about the people who have been assassinated that carried what they believe was this, this black Messiah kind of quality. So what you have with Herod as the writer here says, Herod does not want anybody coming in to disrupt his rulership over the people. A populace that believed that God was on the verge of breaking in was dangerous. Rome ramped up security every Passover because Passover always threatened to rekindle the memory of God's mighty act to save them. Think about that. Every time the Hebrews began to celebrate Passover, i.e. a remembrance of being taken out of slavery into freedom, the Romans would increase security <laughs> because they might remember that God said we are supposed to be free and we not experiencing freedom right now. So what in the world, what in the world is going on? They ramped up security during times of celebration of freedom, i.e. Juneteenth, <laughs> bringing it back in. It was precisely in as much as Jesus was obedient to his father and rooted in the hopes and dreams of Israel that Jesus revealed himself to be a great danger to the rulers of his day. There is a lesson here for black Christians. Political relevance is not so far above us that we have to ask who will ascend and get it. It is not so low that we have to descend to the depths of the earth to retrieve it. The political relevance of the gospel message is in the stories and songs of Israel that make up the pages of the Old Testament. These are stories of a God who fights for us 
and against the enemies of his people. These are stories of a God who turns his compassionate eye towards those whom society forgets. Rome knew this, and so did Herod. Rome knew this, and so did Herod. Get a bunch of Israelites, get a bunch of Hebrews out there calling out to God, crying out to God for freedom, <laughs> and all heaven will break loose. <clears throat> In other words, the revelation of freedom is right underneath your nose if you but enacted and participate in it. What does Jesus say when he finds out that his mission has brought him into conflict with the sitting king of Israel? He says, go and tell that fox for me. Listen. I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. <laughs> and on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jesus' words show no deference to the political authority inherit, inherit status. He calls him a fox. This is not a compliment. To be called a fox in Jesus' day meant to be considered as conniving and deceitful. What about Herod might have led to Jesus calling him a fox? Herod Antipas did not maintain his rule over Galilee because the people believed him to be the rightful ruler, but because he had the backing of the empire. His power was not real. He was propped up. His position was secured through posturing, compromise, and intrigue. In so much as his concern was first and foremost his own survival and not the good of the people, the poor of Galilee could not look to him for help. Herod was a fox, not a king. It is not even clear that he had the ability to carry out the threat levied against Jesus. As a false power, Herod Antipas had no say in reference to the work the father had given Jesus to do. The point here is that Fox is not simply an analysis of Herod's limited piety. It is a description of his political activity as it relates to the inevitable suffering that was going on with the people at the time. This statement made in full view of Pharisees and sure to become a matter of public record. How might Jesus' words inform a theology of the political witness of the church. Jesus shows that those Christians who have called out injustice are actually following in his footsteps. Thus, when Frederick Douglass asked, to what a slave is the 4th of July, or what to a slave is the 4th of July, he had strong theological justification. When the Southern Leadership Council took to the streets of Birmingham, Selma, and Memphis, to speak openly about the sinfulness of the political landscape of his day, they were not far from Jesus and his statements about Herod the fox. Jesus' words go beyond the dismissal of Herod to address the reception of prophets more generally. Jesus says that it is impossible for prophets to die outside of Jerusalem, Luke 13 and 33. His point 
is that there's a tradition of rejecting those that God sends as messengers of his will. It is very easy to misunderstand Jesus' words about rejecting the prophets. We can assume that ancient Israel only rejected the religious message of the prophets, not the things that we deem political. But in Jesus' day, there was a tradition that Isaiah the prophet had been killed in Jerusalem. This justifies a brief discussion of Isaiah's message. Why was Isaiah killed in Jerusalem? His message is filled with things that offer a criticism of Israel, both for its failure to follow the one true God and for its oppression of the poor. Isaiah 5 and 8 reads, You who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is room for no one but you, and you are left to live alone in the midst of the land, i.e., we could tie that to the unhoused populations that we see all over our country. We could tie that to gentrification, taking up all of the land until there is no one else left but you. Isaiah 1 and 4. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel who are utterly estranged. Isaiah 1 and 17. Learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. When people say, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> Learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Whole, whole line of things we could be doing and, and minding our God-called business, right? Isaiah was not rejected simply because he told Israel to worship Yahweh. He was rejected because Isaiah realized that true worship of Yahweh had implications for how you were treating your neighbor. According to Isaiah, Isaiah's oppression of the poor in his day was betrayed as a practical apostasy. How are you moving away from God? You're moving away from God by oppressing the poor. You're moving away from God by leaving the orphan in a vulnerable position. You're moving away from God when you are, instead of pleading for the widow, you are bleeding the widow. You are taking advantage of the widow. You're moving away from God when instead of seeking justice, you are applauding injustice. That's practical apostasy. For Isaiah, piety must bear fruit in justice. Jesus knew that inasmuch as his message of justice impinged on the lives of the powerful, he was liable to rejection and death. Jesus not only embraced this prophetic tradition, he declared himself the climax of it by claiming that the acceptable day of the Lord had arrived in him. Jesus' statement about Herod was not some spur-of-the-moment criticism of a political figure that he did not like. 
Jesus saw his ministry as a part of a tradition of Israel's prophets who told the truth about unfaithfulness to God that manifested itself in the, in the oppression of the disinherited. So if you are a prophet and you are not addressing the oppression of the poor, the vulnerable orphan, the cause of the widow, injustice, and I'm going to ask you to go back and read what the prophets were actually doing and addressing in the text. I know somebody don't want to hit it. But if your whole entire message is about prosperity, but it doesn't address those who are oppressed and impoverished because of deceit and conniving, You're missing part of your message. Jesus drew on the prophets as he spoke truth to power. Therefore, those black Christians who see in those same prophets the warrant for their own public ministry have Jesus as their support. Someone said, and this is true, that the prophetic office has a component where prosperity is tied to the prophet. Yes, when prophets entered a space or when they entered a town, people often prepared to give something to the prophet. There is such a thing called the prophet's reward, that when you give to the prophet, you partake in the reward that's on their life. However, however, beyond giving to a prophet so that you can receive a prophet's reward, the prophet should also be addressing injustice. Because what are we doing? What are we doing? If we are letting silence fill the void see injustice happening what are we doing if we're not speaking truth to power the role of a prophet is about more than telling you you're going to get a house or you're going to get a car the role of the prophet is about leading you to christ all right i'm ready to chop it up if you would like to come on and join me in conversation today you can click on the cam on the camera with the plus sign, and I will be happy to bring you on. If you are listening by Google Play, Spotify, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. Take care, and God bless.